And God, we are so grateful to be in your presence this morning and always. And just pray for your blessings on every bit of what goes on here. Let's worship our fellowship together. Uh, a message from you for our hearts and minds today that will hopefully uh, bring glory to you. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning, everybody. So I'm Jim. I'm the executive pastor here, and I am standing in for Pastor Bruce, who is in Israel with uh, Gregory and Rachel from our staff and 27 or 8 other people who uh, are enjoying a, a trip out there, and I hear good things. And um, yeah, so that's really good to be here with you this morning. And here's the thing about teaching periodically through the course of the year, you have to guard against preparing too much. Um, you got a lot to say as an individual, as a human being, and uh, you want to say it all. So this is my original draft. Yeah, I trimmed it a little bit. I discovered this was about eight or nine sermons, so I'll try and clean it up as I talk here. It's really not a sermon, it's a conference. And uh, I'll spare you that, but uh, we just have one message for you today. And it's uh, the series that I was working on here is talking about messages. Because we are in a flood of various messages from various people all over the place. Anybody notice it's election season? Yeah, there's one Tuesday. Uh, I wish I would have uh, saved everything that came to my house uh, to bring it in here. I could have built a garage for our car with all the, with all the uh, mailers I've got and stuff, and you've got them too, and uh, there's lots of people and groups that have messages for us, and we see and hear them all over the place. We, we see them uh, in the mail, in ads, on blogs, tweets, talk shows, talk radio, signs, billboards, and uh, of course online. And you're bombarded with these messages every day, all day, me too. Lots of companies want us to be their customer, and so in all these various platforms, we might hear from Geico, Honda, Toyota, Southwest Airlines, Diet Coke, K Jewelers, Target, or Dr. Pepper any number of times in the course of a day. I love that Dr. Pepper Fansville campaign they got going on. Have you seen this? It's hilarious. Um, and they have a bunch of commercials that's oriented towards uh, college football because they're the sponsor of the championship. And there's this one, it's kind of Romeo and Juliet-esque, and there's a guy from uh, a, a rival school, and he's in blue, and there's a girl from state, and she's in red. And uh, the guy in blue happens to be the mascot for his school, and they're talking about trying to work through their differences. Can we make this relationship work? They kind of figure out that they can, and they go in for a kiss, and the announcer announces, and State scores, and the girl backs out and says, in your face, and uh, <laughs> makes me laugh, made you laugh, that's good. <laughs> Places of amusement, movies, Universal, Knots, Disneyland, concerts, plays, vacations, cruises, TV shows, YouTube, Facebook, and all the rest want to bring messages into your life. Multiple thousands of people potentially, starting with your family, friends, coworkers, neighbors, charities, vacations, want you to follow them, like them, subscribe to them, comment, align with their campaign, 
join their tribe. And you might have noticed that lots of people are angry. They demand to be heard with fierce complaining, campaign, campaigning, protests, and provocation. There's even a cliche for how we should deal with hearing all of these messages. It's rise above the noise. And amid the blaring, messy clamor of a world of individuals and groups obsessed with their need to hear a voice, Jesus comes in and says, shh, quiet down. Listen to my still, small voice. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. The commandments I believe he's referring to are the great commandment from Matthew 22, where he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is equal to it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Upon these two things hang all the law and the prophets. In other words, in simplifying the message of this entire Bible, Jesus said, if all you did was love God completely and love people selflessly, you will fulfill the entire Bible. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. And so that big, long message I had was uh, going to be about eight or nine different audiences that have messages from the world and then what the Bible might say to those audiences. But I narrowed it down to one audience today, and that would be for the church. And so I want to give some background information here about what's going on with the church. It's not super uh, informative. It's not paragraphs and paragraphs. Listen, though, here's some worldly flat facts. Number one, the church is growing rapidly in the global south, specifically South America and Africa. The church is growing. People are being converted by the thousands. It would be considered a revival by some. It's amazing things are going on down there. But however, number two, participation in the Western church is shrinking. Mainline denominations like... Um, Presbyterian, Lutheran, and Methodists are shrinking like crazy. Uh, Lifeway Research says that 55% of American, Americans believe that the church is declining. It's, a, it's not just church research data. There's a sense in the world that participation in church is shrinking. And then we hear this all the time through stats and uh, research that we receive up in the office that most church growth is by transference, not conversion. And there's a lot of books being written over the last probably about decade warning the church. There's one called The Last Christian Generation. I have another one called Outward, or Onward rather, Onward. And then there's a trilogy of books by one of my favorite authors, fast becoming maybe my favorite author, Oz Guinness. Nas Guinness is British, and he is apparently a genius, and I'd love to read him. And then he's got a trilogy of books, uh, Fool's Talk, Renaissance, and then one I'm going to quote here for a second called Impossible People. And the subtitle of that book is Christian Courage and the Struggle for the Soul of Civilization. It's a weighty title, and the thoughts are weighty. They're critical for our day, and he has a quote here. Uh, from impossible people. He says, it would be idle to speculate what terrible new order today's trendy clerics and faithless Christian active, activists are greasing the slipway for. 
but we need not wait for the outcome. The truth is that the greatest enemy of the Western church is not the state or our government or any ideology such as atheism, but the world and the spirit of the age. You see it is, it's a noisy, confusing, confounding world, and the messages pile on us daily to a degree that we cannot really bear if we're honest. And the question for us today is, are we being deceived by these messages? Are we buying in to messages that are counter to the teachings of the Bible? Are we taking our cues for life from the world and not from God? I love the Bible for how much it speaks into our humanity 100%. There's not a lack of wisdom. There's not a lack of truth. There's not a lack of awareness. Even though it's an old book, it speaks right into the heart of what we experience today. Jesus said in John 10 that the thief, the devil, comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And our awareness of that goes in and out. It fades, I think, most of the time amid all those messages and the luxuries and the fun we get to have in life, all the distractions. But the fact of the matter is that our enemy, the devil, is constantly on the attack. He doesn't take rests. Most notably in this experience that we're talking about today, we can, if we're being truthful, if we're being clear-minded and we see the messages that come across our TV screen, the morals and the philosophies behind what is fed to us in movies and online, it's not too hard to see that there's an attempt to tear down that which is most precious to God. The Bible comes to us another time in Galatians 6, 7 and says, do not be deceived. God will not be mocked. In other words, God will have the last word. And we should guard against, as believing people, as the church, we need to guard against being deceived. The potential exists. It more than exists beyond a potential. It's a probability if we're not on guard. In Ephesians 5, 6 Paul writes to us, let no one deceive you with empty words. Don't be deceived with empty, pointless, vain words that have no eternal payoff. Colossians 2.8 says, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit according to the world. What is the world? When people say the world, what does that mean? I, was, I remember being a little curious about what that meant when I was first hearing those words, and uh, it's hard to define because it evolves. Over time, it evolves. But at its core, here's what it is. At the base, when the Bible says the world, this is what it is. It's the anti-God, anti-truth, anti-gospel spirit of the age. So over the centuries, it's varied, and it's different today than it was 400 years ago, but the world is the anti-God, anti-truth, anti-gospel spirit of the age. The world is like a double agent infiltrating our lives to create doubt and discouragement and division to make us think about and be anything but what God has called us to think about and be. To what extent are you taking your cues from the world? It might be good for us to also be reminded that Romans 12, 2 says, do not be conformed to this world. If I take this sheet of paper which exists to be typewritten on, to write messages on, to lay flat, to keep its shape, and I conform it 
to something different, like a ball, which I can do, it takes pressure, it takes influence, it takes a strategy to get it to be what I want it to be. And I can do a perfect basketball shot. You see that release? That's nice. With the ball. And in the same fashion, the world, the world is energized to conform you to its image. And the Bible says, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Our minds need to come in line with Christ. So our character comes in line with Christ. 1 John 2.15 says, do not love the world or the things in the world. It goes on to say that if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. Clear. Maybe it sounds harsh, but the warning is for our own good. It comes through a little more clear and harsh in James 4.4 where James said that love of the world is enmity or hatred for God. When the ideas and philosophies, when the actions of the world overwhelm our soul and we buy into those more than we buy into truth, we buy into those more than we buy into the character of Christ, we buy into those more than the sacrificial nature of what it means to follow Christ as his disciple, the Bible calls that hatred. And then James tells us in chapter 1, verse 27, that we should keep ourselves unstained from the world, that this is pure and perfect religion. To keep yourself unstained. They used to have that Tide commercial and the stain would talk. And that's all you could see. There's a world out there full of messages telling us what to think, what to believe, who to follow, where to get our approval from. And here we are at Crosspoint, we're men, we're women, we're students, we're spouses, we're children. We're the church. And those messages are seeking to overwhelm our soul, to overwhelm our identity, to define us, so that we're so stained that we're unrecognizable in the way that the Bible calls us to be. Will we stand in the midst of an anti-God world going mad with its determination to be heard and to be followed and listen to God's still, small voice? If you love me, keep my commandments. And so instead of a message for eight or nine different audiences, I have a message for the church. And the world has a message to you too. And I just want to pick on three things, what the world is trying to tell the church. Number one, the church is for ignorant and or weak people. You're ignorant and weak if you participate in the things of God. You're ignorant and weak if you go to church. That's what the world wants to tell you. I've had no fewer than three students tell me that they went to their university classes for the first week of school, and each of them had a professor that said, my job is in life is if you believe in Christ to tear that down. And whether it's Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, or one of your coworkers, people are more and more thinking that church involvement is for the ill-informed and the weak-minded, the weak-willed. 
One of our young adults working at a restaurant and told some friends, mentioned to them that she was going to church. She kind of had a, of course, I'm going to church kind of air about her report. And they said, you go to church? Why? In a minorly mocking way. Number two, the church wants a message, wants you to receive a message that says that your relevance, your voice in the world is fading. And when we hear a president say that we're no longer a Christian nation, the message is Christianity's relevance is fading. And when evil is called good and good is called evil, we can see that the church's relevance is fading. And because those things are true, it only makes sense that the third thing the world wants us to know is that participation at best in the things of faith is optional or at worst unnecessary. But the Bible has something different to say. The Bible says that the church has many individual parts that are dynamically connected and working together to form Christ's body in this world. In other words, when, when those illustrations go in there, maybe you take that lightly. You see body, and it kind of makes a little bit sense to you, but I'd encourage you to ponder that because what it means is that in the absence of Jesus, when he ascended after the res- resurrection and he left this earth, as the chief and primary representation of himself in this world, he left the church to function as his hands and feet in this place, to make the difference in our neighborhood, communities, nation, and world that he would make if he were here. That's why the church exists. We have a corporate mission to share the gospel and make disciples. And if the church doesn't do this work, who does? We do it as his body. We're men and women and students and all the things that make us people here at church working together, dynamically connected, dynamically connected. What do I mean by dynamically? We can't live without one another. If I cut my thumb off, it would be gross, I know. But if I cut my thumb off after being gross and threw it over there, it would die. In 1 Corinthians 12, where this language of body comes through, tells us that if the eye says, I don't want to be part of the body anymore because I'm not the ear, that would, that's foolishness. We're all dynamically connected. We're all important. Number two, the church is the foremost representation of Christ to the world. And we want to be that here at Crosspoint. That's why we have 60 missionaries that we support as a church. We do that. We are committed to getting the gospel around the world. We're committed to getting it out here. We have a Christmas smiles ministry that uh, helps needy families get Christmas gifts. We send Christmas gifts to our needy missionary families. We have Thanksgiving in a bag that helps people who don't uh, have the wherewithal to provide their family a Thanksgiving dinner. That, that opportunity here for free. And on and on I could talk about what we do to live like the church. That's why we're here. But number three, we need to recognize and understand that Jesus loves the church like a groom loves his bride. So much so does he love the church that he gave his life for the church, is what Ephesians 5 says. He loves the church. 
you think about the illustrations of a body and a bride that the Bible provides us for Christ's interaction with the church, you can't help but see dynamic unity, deep devotion, and a determined desire to be more than a simple gathering of people on Sundays. And he loves the church, and we should love what God loves and hate what he hates. He loves the church. He loves it so much that someday soon, and it's closer now than it's ever been, and we don't know when it will be, but someday soon, Christ will return to take the church home. And out of that, I find three vital truths for you today. Number one, the church is important to Jesus. Number two, the church should be important to you. It shouldn't be some, you know, our involvement in church needs to be a priority. It's not some passive involvement that we have. We're not called to be spectators. We're supposed to be engaged and working and serving and loving and caring. The church needs to be important to you. And number three, don't forget, you are important to the church. We sing the praises as a pastoral staff routinely and hopefully often enough from the stage how grateful we are for the people who serve here. Not only grateful, but just really, when we think about it, just dependent. We couldn't get done what we get done without the people who serve. You are important to the church, and whether it's up here on stage playing in the worship team, greeting people out front, or serving at the Welcome Center and kids' ministry, you are important to church. And so there's a message from the Bible for us today in Hebrews 10 that is just super simple. And I love the simplicity of the Bible I think sometimes we want the Bible to be more than simple, and in places it is, but this is a simple message for a church, for the church, for how we can combat the messages of the world and be what God has called us to be. And so if you'll turn to Hebrews 10, we're going to look at just three verses. Starting in verse 23. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. The confession of our hope is Jesus. Let us hold fast to Jesus. Verse 24. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Truth number one. We should agree with the world, number one. We are ignorant and weak, and that's why we need Jesus. Humanity is ignorant and weak. When we have American politicians that argue, like fifth graders on the playground saying, you did it first, no, you did it first. Celebrities are boastful and brazen and rude and they get approval for doing it. We hear it so much, maybe we're numb to it, but in America, we have an opioid crisis. People are dying every single day from abusing prescription drugs. Every single day in America, we have an opioid crisis. 
We have a homeless crisis. So many other things that indicate that the world is broken and we're riddled with fear and uncertainty, but we act like we have it all together. And we're able to do that because we're blessed monetarily, technologically, educationally, maybe in all these ways, but the truth of it is, just like the Bible said generations ago, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're short of what we should be. We're not all we could be. We're not all God created us to be. We're not all God saves a Christian person to be. This world is broken and messed up, and that's why we need Jesus. We're kind of like a car with a flat tire. You can drive it. You can get where you're going, maybe, but it ain't right. We're ignorant and weak, and that's why we need Jesus. I think about my life all the time. I'm 54 years old. I got saved when I was 16. And I'll reflect on this stuff to my wife and kids and even friends sometimes. Usually when my flesh kind of rises up, you know, which happens sometimes in the car, let's say. That's the easiest one to pick on. You know, and I'm, I'm coaching people from my car how to drive because they're too slow or they don't use their blinker or whatever. We all do it. And you've heard me talk about that before. And then I get a little convicted about it and go, you're a jerk, dude. Like, the whole world doesn't revolve around you. This person doesn't have to go 72 because you want to go 72 in a 65. And I'll just think, what kind of a wacko would I be without Jesus? Jesus has changed me so much. Worked anger and bitterness out of me. I used to swear so much. I used to, man, I'd, I'd make a sailor grin with pride of my language. I didn't treat people well. Any number of things I can point to and think, man, where would I be without God? I'm weak and ignorant. I'm so sinful. I'm so broken. I'm so nothing without Jesus. Let us hold fast to the confession. Let us hold fast without wavering. Without wavering. The world tells us we're not relevant in the world. Number two, we are the most relevant when we are doing good. Not when we're healthy and feeling good. When we're doing well in the world. When we're doing good things. Let us encourage one another. Let us stir up one another to love and good works. I was talking with a friend of mine who is, uh, he's kind of in business. And we were just talking about how conflict can arise in work, work uh, agreements and business and stuff. And he's very patient and he's very calm and he's very kind. And he says this to me. He says, treat people with love and kindness. What can they say? When the church does bad in the world, it sacrifices influence. It cheats credibility. I caught a story on ESPN on Friday, a taped conversation between a Haitian student and an authority figure, oddly enough, a CEO of Nation Christian Academy, apparently one of these Florida sports academies, 
The headline that I looked up today, just to summarize the story, said, Coach admits to vulgar, abusive rant versus basketball player this happened at Nation Christian Academy. And we talk about we're losing our influence in the world, our relevance as a church in the world. Well, when these kind of stories go out and there's hundreds of others like them, and when the church doesn't do right in the world, we sacrifice our influence, we sacrifice our relevance. Compare that to Tim Tebow. Tomoko is uh, reading his new book called Shaken. And she told me about how it opens the story with Tim being on a flight. And on this flight, a couple is there and the man has a heart attack. And his wife is upset and he goes to comfort her. They work to remove the husband from the plane. He goes out an exit she cannot go out of so she can't get in the ambulance with him. Tim walks her to the, to the airport walks with her, prays with her, cries with her. She has no ride to the hospital. He offers his car. He goes with her. When they get there, he's gone. Understandably, she's quite upset, and he sits with her for hours, praying with her. And Tim Tebow may be a failure as a pro athlete, but for a representative of the Church of Christ, He's a champion. And when we do good in this world, when we do right, when we devote our lives to being those kind of people, you may never achieve the status of influence that Tim Tebow has, but you have a context in your family, in your neighborhood, in your place of work. You have a context. We cheat the gospel when we're indifferent or sinful and we elevate it when we love and do good. Number three, verse 25, not neglecting to meet together. In other words, not neglecting to go to church. This might be the habit of some, but instead encourage one another all the more as you see the day approaching. Number three, committed and consistent participation in church is more necessary now than ever. We're treating it, and the country is treating it like it's less necessary. The Bible right here tells us the closer the return of Jesus is, be together, be encouraging, more, not less. a church growth researcher by the name of Tom Rainer, and he's a prolific writer in this regard, and he's awesome. He said, 20 years ago, a church member was considered active if they attended three times a week. Today, a church member is considered active if he or she attends three times a month. So you go to work at least 40 hours a week. That's 160 hours a month for four weeks, right? Likely you spend 15 to 30 hours a week with some sort of media. 80 hours a month, one to four hours a week at church, times three, according to Rainer's stats, that's 12 hours a month. So almost 200 at work, almost 100 in media, and 12. But the Bible says don't neglect to meet together, but do so more and more as the day approaches. Why? Because church is where we rally 
This world's a mess. And it's hard not to get stained by the world. And we come into church and we gather with like-minded people and we share the love of Christ here. And we serve one another and we listen to one another and we pour truth and love and service into one another. It's like a rally. We're nourished here. We get trained here. And training isn't just about hearing and receiving, it's about doing. If I say, hey, I'm going to personally train you, and all we do is talk about lifting weights, and I can show you technique, and I can tell you all about what it means the benefits are, and all we do is talk about it, guess what? You're fat. You got to be active. You got to participate in what's going on here. These aren't options. This is a simple message. It's not complicated. In and of itself, it's not complicated. The world says the church is irrelevant, that it's pointless, it's not helpful. Some people say it's worse. Here's what I know about us. We all need Jesus. We just do, because we are. We're weak and broken. And if you don't know Jesus today, I hope you figure out what I was able to figure out when I was 16. I can't make it on my own. It was so, I wanted to be good. It was impossible. Not that I'm great now, but thanks to Jesus, I'm better. I knew I wasn't good enough. And I knew I couldn't make it to heaven on my own if I had to work my way in there. But the truth of the gospel is that Jesus died on a cross to pay for my weakness, for my ignorance, for my sin. He died to pay for what I could not pay for myself by being good. And then three days later, miraculously, he rose again to give me eternal life. To guarantee me a home in heaven. Again, something I could not have ever done on my own. We all need Jesus. Then we all need to do right in this world. If you're a follower of Christ, we know that this is nothing new. But is it a commitment? Is it a, is it a posture? Is it, even though it's hard, even though I fail, I'm going to do right in this world. I have a ruler up in my office. I should have brought that down here. It would have been a cool picture. I have a ruler up in my office. It was given out in the early 60s by the Coca-Cola company. And it says on the front, do unto others, ellipsis. Assuming that we know the end, then it says a good rule to live by. And that went out to public schools in America in the 60s. We, the church, need to bring that spirit into our living, into our world. We need to elevate the gospel of Jesus Christ and his church by the things we say and the things we do. And then we need to be fully committed to church life. I know it's busy out there. 
The Bible doesn't say, be committed to living right and doing right unless you're busy. And I know we're tired. I had a talk with one of my sons and about just how, I don't know that we're that much more active, but our brains are just overwhelmed with messages. And I was trying to compare for him. And it's just guesswork, but I was, you know, in the course of a week in, in the 80s when I was in my 20s, maybe I heard this many messages. In a day, he hears this many. And it's tiring. What the world is telling is going to free it, telling us is going to free us up and give us rest and make life easier, might just be making it more difficult. It's certainly making it more burdensome. And so what pays the price? What do we feel so readily able to set aside? Don't let it be the church. For yourself, for your kids, dig in. Be enthusiastic, committed participants in the work of Christ in this world to deliver people from hell with the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What's more powerful? What's more blessed to be a part of? The Bible says that each one of us has been given a gift, so let us use it to serve one another. We're so excited about how many people serve. There's a couple gaps in our serving, though. You know, when we invite people to serve, there's two categories of people who rush in to make the difference. The first is people 40 and above. And that doesn't mean people under 40 aren't serving. But when the call comes out, 40 and above, rush. If you're in your 30s today, if you're in your 20s, I know you're busy, life's hard. We need you. We need you now. I had a friend who used to tell me all the time, tomorrow is the devil's word. He was speaking into procrastination that we'd like to put off the things that are important even if we know they're best. We'll put them off maybe in exchange for something that's good but not best. Man, we need you. If you wait till you're 40 or 50 to sign up to serve in church, the church won't be here in a few years. We need you. In the older generations, instead of looking down on Millennials or whoever it might be and thinking that they're entitled or irresponsible, encourage them. They need you. They need you to pass the torch faithfully. We have sign-up sheets in the back for ministry teams. They're to my left at a table underneath a cool graphic Rachel and Sandra put together. Man, we'd love you to sign up. We've had several-month gaps in our kids' ministry several month gaps in our welcome center. We have gaps in our group leadership. 
We can't get these things done without good people being committed to the thing that Jesus himself was committed to, to the extent that he gave his life for it. So we have sign-up sheets back there. We like people to have fun and have fellowship and be friends together, so we have these things that started a couple years ago called activity groups. There's a sign-up at the back of this section, backed up against the chairs. And we have a few groups that, that they gather monthly, some weekly. I have a cycling group where I'm a part of it. We, just, we go road biking. We ride fast and dangerous. You probably honk at us. Um, right? Because you guys all hate cyclists. Is that right? Sorry. We obey the law because we do good in this world, like the Bible tells us to. This way. Uh, there's a basketball, adult, league, adult not league, but just pick up game basketball. There's crochet and knitting. There's a photography group, and we're interested in adding other groups. If you have something where you would be willing to email a bunch of people and say, hey, we're getting together to go do this. Maybe it's rock climbing, which go see Free Solo, amazing movie about a guy, the first guy to Free Solo El Capitan, which is a 3,200-foot sheer cliff. You've heard of it. It's in Yosemite. It's 2018. He's the first person in history to climb it without ropes. Yeah, it's nerve-wracking. So if you want to start a rock climbing group, you can tell me that back there, or uh, maybe you want, you know, some kind of activity group. We have a few little rules we have, because it is church, but man, we'd love, you, love for you to, to get involved with one of those, or even start one. We need you, and the world needs the church. In spite of what it says to tell us otherwise, the world needs the church. And Jesus needs it to be a powerful force in this world. And the Bible's littered with commands to participate at a certain level of commitment. And Jesus says, if you love me, will you keep my commands? And God, we're just grateful for the church. If we're honest, if we take a survey of our lives and our participation in church. There's probably very little regret for doing so and a ton of blessing. And I think that truth gets shoved out of our hearts and minds by a world that's desperate to crowd you out of our lives and out of this world and to make the church something less than your body, something less than your bride. And today we stand to resist that. And for anybody in the room who has never experienced the triumph of having their sins forgiven and the promise of a home in heaven because they turned their lives over to Jesus, we pray they would do so today that they would do what your word says. The Bible says that if we confess, our, uh, confess Jesus as Lord, if we confess that he died on the cross to pay for our sins and rose to give us eternal life, if we confess that, we will be saved. And a simple prayer could be prayed that says, God, please forgive me for my sin. Come into my life. I accept you as my Savior and my Lord today. 
And I thank you for not only your forgiveness, but for your promise of a home in eternity. And then God, we're just grateful to participate in church ministry, not just on Sundays, but throughout the course of the week and not just in Huntington Beach or Orange County, but around the world. And we give to that faithfully, sacrificially. And you take that money and you change lives and you change the world. So we pray your blessings on this offering this morning. And it's in your name and for your glory that we pray. Amen.